You guys can have a seat. Well, thanks for being here today. For a lot of you guys, I know that this is the end of your spring break and that tomorrow starts back to a normal routine. And so I know a lot of people like to use this week to squeeze in one last day away. So you guys could have been anywhere in the world today, but you chose to be here, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, real quick, here's what I want you to do. Turn to someone sitting next to you, and here's what I want you to tell them. Think back to when you were a kid, and if that's way too far back, then think about your own kids or your grandkids or whatever. But think back to when you were a kid, what was the movie or the story that you basically wore out? What was the movie that you like watched over and over as soon as it was done, you hit rewind if you, back in the VCR days, or you just started it over and it was a DVD, or what was the book that you read over and over and over and over growing up, turn to someone next to you and just real quick, share that book or that movie that you just wore out as a kid or as a grandkid. All right. Anybody in here have a daughter or a granddaughter or maybe even you yourself that Frozen was like, it just went on for too long. It just kept getting repeated. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, like you're more than ready to let it go. Okay. All right. You know, it makes a lot of sense, though, when you think about Frozen, like, for girls. You have, the whole story is basic, like, like, if you actually watch the movie Frozen, it's actually not that great a movie. But what it is, hear me out, what it is, it's emotional scene after emotional scene after emotional scene strung together with a, a plot. And so, yeah, you see all these little girls like, of course I want to be best friends with my sister and have this awesome little sidekick snowman. It's like, oh, well, yeah, every eight-year-old girl in the world is going to fall in love with it. I was thinking, though, back when I was a kid, I grew up kind of poor. I think I've shared that before. And I, someone gave me a copy. I don't know where I, I got it, but there's this book called Carry On, Mr. Bowditch. And it was written back in the 50s, but it t- takes place like in the 1600s or 1700s. And the story is about this boy who has these dreams of going to college and dreams of learning a lot and becoming this uh, successful businessman or something like that. But his family's so poor that college is basically a pipe dream because this is back when like, there was only a handful of colleges in the whole country. And his family's so poor that they eventually end up having to sell him as an indentured servant aboard a sailing ship. And so he thinks that like, his life is over and it's, his dreams are dashed. But the story talks about how he basically like, self-teaches himself subject after subject after subject, how he learns to become like a successful merchant captain, how he rewrites navigational charts. And, and I remember reading that as a, as a boy thinking, this is a story that I can identify with. It's like a rags to riches story. And that was, at the time, that was my dream. Is like, I want to grow up and I want to be able to do these kind of things. And so I would read that book over and over thinking, maybe that can be me. I remember also, too, when I was in third and fourth grade, I was living in the state of Indiana, and my favorite basketball player at the time was a guy named Isaiah Thomas, because he had gone to Indiana University, and he was part of the Detroit Pistons, and they were world champions. And someone gave me a book about him, and I learned that when he was in high school and learning to play basketball and learning to get better, that he had to travel like five or six different trains across Chicago to get to the high school where he'd received a scholarship to go because his local high school was extremely um, in a bad part of town. There was not a lot of hope there. And so he got a scholarship to this prestigious high school. And so for 90 minutes each morning, he'd have to get up way earlier than everybody else and travel to school, spend all day at school, do his homework there, practice there, and then travel 90 minutes back, and he wouldn't get home until like 9 o'clock at night. And when I was learning to play basketball, I used that story as inspiration. Like, if Isaiah Thomas can do it, then I can learn to play basketball too. And, I can, and like, he had to do it in much worse circumstances. And what we do with stories 
is we let stories shape who we want to be. We let stories shape how we want to grow up. We let stories kind of tell us who we're going to be. If any of us have ever had a grandparent, we've probably heard this before, where your grandparent tells you, you don't have any idea how lucky you are. Back in my day, insert story of hardship, you know, and they would say, like, you know, I had to walk 20 miles to school, uphill, in the snow, and, and then it would snow more during school, and so it would be uphill again on, like, the back way, and you're like, okay, Grandpa, I get it. Things are tough. Quit whining. Or, like, if you're a parent, you know, you tell stories to your kids, trying to teach them lessons. We've all heard that story, like, the boy who cried wolf, because we're trying to teach kids, don't lie. Bad things happen when you lie. And so we use stories as a way to shape and direct who we're going to be as a people, as a, as a family, as a church. And we've been talking about this idea of creating a legacy. And basically what a legacy is, is the story our actions tell those around us. A legacy is simply the story we tell through how we act. And we've been talking about, and if you're brand new today, this might be new to you, but we're going to be moving into our first permanent home as a church in a few weeks or months, depending on how everything falls with contractors and dates and stuff like that. But this will be our first permanent home. We've been around for 13 years, but this is the first time we get to move into a home that we're not renting, that we're not borrowing, that's something that we can call our own. And so we've been talking, what kind of story do we want to tell with this facility? What kind of story do we want to tell as we move into this building? What are we going to tell our community? What are our actions going to say? What kind of legacy are we going to leave? And as I was thinking about today and I was thinking about stories, I came across a story Many of us have heard it. It's a very famous story. It is, in fact, it's so famous that many people who don't know anything about God, Jesus, the Bible, have heard this story. It's become a term that's used in our culture. But as I was looking at this story, I was like, this story speaks a lot to who we want to be as a church and what we're going to try to do and the things that we're going to be a part of. And so if you have a Bible today, we're going to be looking at a story found in Luke chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible or if, it's not, if you didn't bring your phone or your tablet or whatever, it'll be on the screen, so don't worry about it. But in Luke chapter 10, we find this really cool story that Jesus told that I think has a ton of implications for how we move into our new building. So in Luke chapter, oh, before we go any further, I really like Luke. And here's the reason why. If you don't know much about the Bible or you're brand new or anything like that, Luke was one of the early followers of Jesus. And Luke was a doctor. And when he started following Jesus, at a certain point in time, he said, okay, I want to know exactly what happened. So when you read the book of Luke, you read basically a piece of investigative journalism where Luke went around interviewing people, talking to eyewitnesses and saying, okay, I'm going to write down what really happened, what people really saw so that I've got the facts straight. And so every time I read Luke, I always kind of feel like, hey, this is something that I can trust. This is something that I can uh, believe in. So in Luke chapter 10, we find a story starting in verse 25. Many of you will recognize this story. You might have heard it. It's, It's made its way into popular culture. But this is a story that will shape who we are. So in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, this is what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Lord, the love your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Okay, to set the stage for this story that we're about to read, kind of give you guys some background information. Jesus was constantly getting 
nagged, picked on, tested by the religious authorities of his day. Jesus, they thought, didn't come up through the proper channels, go to the right schools, belong to the right clubs. And so they thought Jesus was basically an outsider. They didn't like the way that he kind of undermined their authority. So they were always testing him, always asking him questions, always trying to just kind of trip him up. See, like, if we can discredit what he says, maybe he'll lose some of this following and we can reestablish ourselves as the dominant authority of the day. So religious leaders, religious experts in the law, always testing Jesus, always trying to trip him up. And so they ask him this question. Who is my neighbor? Let's see, what we, let's see how, we, how Jesus will respond. And he tells us this story starting in the next verse, in verse 30. This is how Jesus responds about who's the neighbor. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Okay, so before we go further, we have to do a little bit of explaining about what's going on in this story. Because at first it doesn't make sense. A guy gets beat up, okay, we understand that, he gets robbed, he gets left half dead. Okay, that part we're good. But then we hear like this priest comes and kind of like goes all the way around, and we're like, what? Why would he do that? So we're going we're gonna to change some of these terms to kind of make it more modern day. So priest and Levite, we're going to substitute pastor and church staff member, okay? Now, guy gets beat up left half dead. You see a pastor come up. Now, you have to remember in Jewish culture, there was this concept of being ritually unclean. And anytime you touched blood or anytime you touched something that was dead, you became ritually unclean, which would mean that depending on what the infraction was and, and how severe it was, you were basically out of commission, had to stay away from the community for X amount of time until you ritually were clean again. And there would be ceremonial washings. There would be have to, a lot of stuff you would have to do. So as this pastor walks up and sees this guy lying half dead in the road, he thinks to himself, ooh, if I stop and help, everything I'm about to go do at my job, I'm going to have to take a time out on. It's going to put me way behind. I will be ritualistically unclean. I need to make a wide berth around this guy because it's going to slow me way down. Same thing for the Levite, slash we're going to call him a church staff member. Sees the guy half dead, realizes, if I become ritualistically unclean, it's going to take a lot of time and effort to become clean again. It's going to slow me way down. I'm going to have to lose a lot of time. I have some important meetings and things I've got to take care of. The guy's probably dead anyway. The easiest thing for me to do is to walk all the way around him so there's no chance of any blood spilling on me or getting on me and I can continue my journey. And then it says a Samaritan came along. Now, once again, we we don't understand the term Samaritan because usually the only time we hear it is in a positive light. We hear the term good Samaritan. The story, like I said, is pretty popular. But in Jesus' day and time, Samaritans were despised people. So to bring this up to modern-day terms, we're going to call these Raider fan, okay? So, (laughs) just joking, just joking. No, but the Jewish people and the Samaritans basically hated each other. The Samaritans were people who had once been Jewish, but had intermarried and intermingled with the other nations around them, and the Jewish people kind of thought that they looked at them as sellouts. They had sold out the Jewish faith, they were no longer part of the same tribe, and so they hated Samaritans. They said Jewish people thought of themselves as being the ones who had stuck with God, had stuck with the law, and they looked at Samaritans as almost less than human. There was a lot of bad blood and stuff between them. And so Jesus told this story to a Jewish audience where the Samaritan comes up and sees the man and takes pity on him. And then this is where Jesus continues the story. 
in verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, talking about the Samaritan, pouring on oil and wine. Back in the day, that's how they would treat a wound. They'd pour oil and wine on it to clean it out. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is basically like two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's easy to read this story and think that the point of the story is to do good when you see people being hurt. And that's, that's true. That's honestly true. Yeah, that, that is kind of the main point. But if you look at it deeper, I think there's more going on than what most people realize in this story. I think what Jesus is doing is he's talking about three different stories that we can tell the world around us. Three different worldviews that are contained within this story. And honestly, I think every single worldview can apply to a church. And what I want to kind of do is break down the three worldviews and say, which church do we want to be as we move into our new building? The first worldview I see in this story is that of the robbers. They saw somebody, he had what they wanted, they went and beat him up and took it. And you're like, okay, Jeremy, how does that apply to a church? Well, I know a lot of churches that view their community as the enemy. They want a space in their community. They want resources from their community. But they view their community as the enemy. And when their community encounters them, they walk away feeling more beat up. I know a guy who was telling me the story once about where he was asked to come speak at a church. And so he gets there a little bit early, and he's talking to some of the church leaders, and it's outside. And a woman uh, pulls into the parking lot and starts to walk up, and he said, you could just tell by looking at this woman that life had been hard on her. Very rough looking, very looking down and out. And he says while he's there, one of the guys that he'd been talking to walks up to the, uh, to the woman. He's thinking he's going to greet her or whatever. But the guy walks up to her and says, young lady, at this church, we wear our best for Jesus. And so she turns around and walks up, feeling beat up, feeling worse than when she had arrived. I remember my dad was a pastor, and I remember one time he got sent to a church. uh, He specialized in getting churches back on their feet, churches that were struggling, churches that were uh, dealing with issues. He would go revitalize them, help them get back on their feet. And so he went to this one church, and we moved there, and they'd they'd been declining for a long time, and my dad was there for about six months, and all of a sudden people started to, once again, start to come to the church. People were getting baptized. New families were coming. And the leaders of the church had a meeting with my father, and they said, hey, look, we don't like these people that are coming. I swear this is true. We don't like these people. They don't look like us. They don't don't really fit in with us. They don't really belong in this church. The church beat up the community. The church said, we have ideas about what we want to be, and those people aren't part of what we want to do. Sadly, there are churches out there that exist like that, that when people encounter them, they, they walk away feeling beat up and abandoned by the church. That's one way our church could go. The second worldview I see in this story is that of the priest and the Levite. Now, the priest and the Levite didn't necessarily beat up the guy, but they were extremely busy doing religious things and couldn't stop and help. Unfortunately, there are a lot of churches that are like this. They're really, really busy. If you look at the calendar, there's always something going on. And it's not that they dislike their community. It's just that they don't have time for their community. 
They need to walk clearly around because to stop and help would slow them down. To stop and invest in their community would take more effort than it's worth. To stop and to help would be to say, okay, look, I get that you have needs, but you don't understand. I'm really busy. I've got this meeting to be to, this activity to belong to, this club that I'm doing, this group that I'm a part of. And so, yes, I I feel your pain, but unfortunately there's not much I can do about it right now. You see churches like this a lot because if you look at, like I said, if you look at their calendar, they're always busy. But nobody's life is changing. Nobody's getting baptized. Nobody's coming to Christ. No one's finding hope. It's the same group of people year after year after year, and they're always busy, and there's always lots to do, but no one's really getting any better. No one's finding hope. That's one story we could tell our community. Hey, you're over here suffering. We're over here, and as long as we're separate, we're fine. The third story that we could tell our community is that of the Samaritan. And what I find interesting is that the Samaritan knew far less about God, far less about Jesus, far less about being holy than the priest and the Levite. But he said, you know what, I see someone in need, and I'm not going to wait for someone who's better qualified. I'm not going to wait for someone who knows more than me to help. I'm just going to go and do what I know how to do. And honestly, there will always be churches that are more qualified than us. There will always be churches that know more than us. There will always be churches that have more things figured out than us. But we can be a church that says, you know what, I'm not going to wait until everything is perfect to do what I can do. I'm not going to wait till I know more because there will always be something I don't know. There will always be someone who could do it better. But there's people in our community that are hurting, that need God, that are suffering, that have been beat up by the world around them, and we're going to be a church that goes and loves them. I was doing some research about for our new building. Uh, there's, a, there's a general rule of thumb in church world. If you talk to church strategy guys or church experts, there's a general rule of thumb that says people usually won't travel more than 15 minutes to get to a church. They might if they know someone or there's a real strong connection or there's some reason like they're really good at one thing or particular. But on average, people won't travel more than about 15 minutes or so to get to your church. So I said, okay, based on where our new church is, how many people are within 15 minutes that don't know Jesus? Where our new building is located, if you were to drive, make about, take a 15-minute radius and just make a circle, there's about 90,000 people that don't know Jesus within 15 minutes of our new building. 90,000 people who don't know God. 90,000 people who might have been beat up by this world. 90,000 people who don't have the hope that we have. And when you start to think about it, you're like, man, yeah, of course we've got to do something. Of course we've got to be part of bringing hope to them. But then we look at the story of the Good Samaritan and we realize something. It cost the Samaritan a lot to care for his community. Think about it. He used all of his own medical supplies and bandages, which meant that if something came along later on, he might have to go without. He put the man on his own donkey, so he was walking to the next town. He gets to the hotel. He pays for not only his room, but the other guy's room. He pays for any further expenses. He leaves a deposit down with the innkeeper and then says, hey, and if it's more than that, when I come back, let me know and I will pay the rest. If we want to be a church and if we want to be people who tell a story of caring for our community, we have to realize that there's a cost associated with it. It's one thing to say, oh man, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for your problems. It's another to say, I'm going to be part of paying for the solution. And what we've been talking about before Easter and what we've talked about for a couple months is that when we move into this new building, there's going to be a cost, a real real financial cost associated with it. 
You might have been seeing this in your bulletin. We'll put it back on the screen. But we've kind of created four giving tiers to kind of break down what is the cost of moving into this new building. If you look at it, we basically are going to need $200,000 over the next year to be able to move into the building and upgrade it. We'll, we'll show you guys a tour today at 1 o'clock and then again next Sunday at 1 o'clock. You'll be able to go in and see it. Like, hey, this is a pretty nice building. And it actually looks really great for a church, but there's definitely some things we're going to need to do. We're going to need to buy tables. We're going to need to buy chairs. We're going to need to buy some basic stuff. We basically need to raise $200,000 over this next year to be able to move into the building well and to rebuild our emergency fund, which we've used to be able to secure our spot in this building. And so we said, hey, we need 10 people to give $5,000 above their normal giving over the next year. If you want to see what that breaks down to per month, it's about $417. So we need 10 people that says, you know what? I want to tell that kind of story. For some of you, we understand $5,000 is a pipe dream. It might as well be $50,000 or $500,000. It's all equally impossible for you. We get that. But for some of you, $5,000 is doable. For some of you, it's actually really doable. And we need 10 people that will say, I'm going to give $5,000 above and beyond what I normally give. We need 25 of you to do the same thing and say, I'm going to give $2,000 above what I normally give. That's about $167 a month over this next year. We need 50 of you to give 1000 which is basically $84 a month above what you currently give. And then we need 100 of you to give $500 above what you currently give over this next year. That's about $42 a month, or honestly, that's about $10 a week. If you've never given anything and you want to start giving, that's a great place to start. 10 bucks a week. Cut out one meal at some restaurant, and you've got it. But what we've said is that we want to be a church that collectively raises this $200,000 over the next year so that we can have a facility that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, we can be part of telling a great story to our community. Currently, we meet here on Sunday mornings. The rest of the week, we're not able to do anything here. We want a place where we can tell people all the time, where we can host things and let people know, you matter to God. You matter to people. As much as I as the numbers matter and numbers do matter and it's good to break it all down, what excites me the most isn't the numbers. What excites me the most are the stories like the email I got this past week. I got this email from this family. They said, hey, I came on Easter Sunday. My kids loved your kids' program. They want to come back. I sat in the service and Pastor Scott preached a message and I swear it's like he knew I was going to be there. It spoke straight to me. We're definitely coming back. Thank you for all that you've done. I want to hear that story over and over and over and over again. I want us to be a community and a church that tells that story to our community, to the 90,000 who don't know Jesus. But it takes all of us working together. It takes all of us coming together as a team so that those kind of stories can be told. I want you to watch this video here real quick. Great moments are born in great opportunity. You shouldn't have any doubt in your mind about what you're supposed to do tonight and about how you're supposed to do it. This is your time. Now, I don't want them to gain another yard. We gotta go out there and we gotta take it. Take their game and shove it right back in their face. That's how winning is done. Team is something you belong to. Something you feel. You have to earn. If we don't come together, it's over. And I guarantee a week won't go by in your life. You won't regret walking out, letting them get the best of them. 
I'll ask you one last time. To be the best that you can be. Play like champions. Win. It's about heart. It's about who can go out there and play the hardest. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. I don't care what the scoreboard says. At the end of the game, in my book, we're going to be winners. In any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die, willing to take the hits, who's going to win that inch. Let me tell you something you don't let me. Nothing. We shut them down because we can't. championship team if all the hours of practice and all the sacrifice and all the money spent on equipment was worth it. You can tell that they think it's worth it when they're hoisting the trophy and everyone's cheering. No one asks a band who's just won the Grammy, hey, all that practice time and all that time touring, like, was it really worth it? No one asks a theater company after opening night when the curtain goes down and the crowd stands and applause, hey, Was it really worth all the set design and stage design and time and practice? Was it really worth putting all that time and effort into it? You just know that it is. You can see it on the people's faces. Well, we're a church, and we don't compete for trophies, and we're not looking to sign a record deal. What we're looking to do is to change lives. And if you ask, is it worth it? Is it worth it to take $200,000 invested? Is it worth it to spend all the time and effort it is to move into a new building? Is it worth it? The answer is yes, because every time you see someone's life changed and you see their expression on their face and you know that there are angels in heaven rejoicing louder than any sports crowd, you know that the story is worth it. You see this every year around March Madness or the Super Bowl. or You see, you see the, the losing team full of these guys that are like toughest guys on earth, bawling like babies. And you're like, wait, these are tough guys. Why are they so sad? Why are they so crying? Because they've just spent a year pouring their heart into something. And it didn't turn out quite the way they wanted. But they know that there's memories that are going to, be la- that are going to last forever that are a part of it. And for us, the, the good news is, is that we don't lose in the end. Our story is written. We know that in heaven one day we succeed. And so the question is, how many people do we get to take with us? How many people's lives get to change? How many people get to be a part of an awesome church telling an awesome story to the community around it. And so, yes, it is tough. Yes, it requires sacrifice. Yes, it requires financial resources. But the story is worth it. And so maybe for you today, though, maybe the story that you best identified with was not the robber, the priest, or the Samaritan. Maybe for you, the person you most identified with was the guy that was beat up on the side of the road half dead. And maybe for you, the way you walked in here today was you're like, you know what? Most of life, I have been beat up. Most of life, I've been told I'm not worthy. Most of, the li- most of my life, people have used me and left me on the side of the road. And what I want to tell you today is that we worship an awesome Savior in Jesus who died for each and every one of us 
so that everyone gets to have a new chapter in their story. Yes, the first 20 chapters of your life might have been awful, but there's still many more chapters yet to come. And today can be the day that you accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life and start to tell a new chapter, tell a new story, a story that has hope, a story that has community, a story that has people who care about you, not because of what you can do, but because that you are someone who's simply loved by God. And so in a second, I'm going to say a prayer and the band's going to come up. And if for you, the best decision that you need to make today is to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, our prayer team will be down here in the front and we would love to pray with you. We would love to start that new chapter in your story. For the rest of us, let's pray real hard and figure out where God is leading us on this pledge drive. Next Sunday is Pledge Sunday where we're going to, we'll have commitment cards to say, okay, here's what I'm committing to above and beyond what I currently give. Because we want to be a church that tells a story where we love our community where we invest in it, where the 90,000 people within 15 minutes of our new building know that they have a place they can come into any Sunday and be accepted and be loved. And so if you would, just pray with me now. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that tells a better story to our community, that tells a story of where people are loved, people are cared for, where those that are hurting find hope, where those that are lonely find community. I pray today for the guy or the girl in this room who's walked in here thinking that no one cared. Lord, my prayer is that they would understand that they are deeply, deeply loved and that we will go to the ends of the earth to make sure that they understand that, that we will sacrifice, we will do the things necessary so that they understand that they belong here and they belong with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just move them to accept you as their Lord and Savior. I pray for everyone in this room that we would become a church known for our care for others. That our legacy in Natomas would be one where people say, you know what, there's something about adventure. There's something about those people. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I know they love me and I know they care for me. And what I pray that they would, they would go, come to understand over time that what that thing they can't quite describe is, is, is your presence and your power moving through us. Mold and shape us into, into the image of Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.